Heavenly Father, your testimonies are our heritage forever. We pray that they are the joy of our heart. Help us to incline our hearts to perform your statutes forever to the end. And we pray this in your Son's name. Amen. All right, Psalm 137, 137. Put up your hand if this is your favourite psalm. Whenever I ask my students in psalms class, or in, when I teach the Bible, I always ask them, what is your favourite psalm? And everybody's got a favourite psalm, but nobody says 137. <laughs> now, have you, has anyone heard uh, people preaching from this before, Psalm 137? Okay, there's been at least one. Um, so you can see it's, it's not a popular psalm. 137 is not a popular psalm. Why do we tend to ignore this psalm? Why do we tend to ignore this psalm? <coughs> Perhaps we're a little bit embarrassed by it. <coughs> After all, it does end with hatred and seething anger. So much so, it doesn't seem to belong in God's word. And perhaps some of us think that this psalm is even unchristian. So C.S. Lewis, the famous author of the Narnia series, which includes The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, amongst others, has called psalms like this terrible. He's called them contemptible, devilish, profoundly wrong, and sinful prayers. And we may think C.S. Lewis is right. After all, doesn't Jesus teach us to love our enemies and to pray for them? It might not surprise you then that some people have tried to remove at least the last few verses from this psalm. Now, of course, we wouldn't perform such a psalmectomy, but we may perform such a removal in practice by ignoring it, by skipping it when we're reading the Psalms, or perhaps not preaching or teaching from Psalm 137. Now, by the way, for those of you who are a little bit older or are into music, you might have heard the song uh, performed by Boney M in 1978. Does anyone remember the tune? Now, I have to say this because every time I preach from Psalm 137, somebody comes up to me afterwards and says, have you heard the song by Boney M? So... <laughs> Let me just get it out there right now. <laughs> anyway, in this song, in this song, they only, I checked this yesterday on YouTube, they only sing the first few verses of Psalm 137. They leave out any mention of vengeance. So obviously the second half, uh, this is the, the song. The yeah, air part is added, not from the Bible. <laughs> Um, but you'll see that they removed the second half, uh, which talks about vengeance. Obviously, it's not good for selling records. <laughs> but why is there such anger in Psalm 137? And more importantly for us as Christians, what can we do about such emotion today? So as we look at this psalm, we'll first consider what triggered the psalmist's anger, and then we'll examine the psalmist's response in two parts. So first, what triggered the psalmist's anger? The scene is set in verse 1. Just take a look at verse 1. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. So this is a picture of the exiles by a river or perhaps an irrigation channel in Babylon. And you'll see, you'll see where on the next slide. So... This is where the exiles have come from, from Israel, Judah. Come across this way. 
if you read Ezekiel, it talks about them being by the Kibar River. So that's that one there. So they're in this region in Babylon. Yeah. So these Israelites have been deported and they're distraught as they think about the devastation of Zion. All that they held dear has been destroyed by the Babylonian army. Their land and their kingdom, their homes and their families, the capital city has been destroyed. And this is what the psalmist means by remembering Zion. That is, it's recalling the destruction of Israel's homeland. And this is where we are on, you guys might have seen this. You guys, some of you are taking Bible overview, have taken Bible overview. Right, where are we on our storyline of the Bible? <coughs> Tell me when to stop. <coughs> yeah? Right, so um, Jerusalem has been destroyed, and now we're sitting around about here in exile, right? Right, so... Um, Exiled from their homeland, we find that the Babylonian captors come to torment the Israelites. Take a look at verses 2 to 3. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captives required of us songs. And our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. And the exile's response is not surprising, is it, in verse 4. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? A broken heart cannot sing songs of joy. Now the situation is something like this. Imagine if Indonesia comes to invade Malaysia. They destroy KLCC, Petronas Towers, flattens most of the CBD and St. Mary's Cathedral. The Indonesian army takes the leaders and the educated people as captives. They take you along with others as captives to Indonesia. Now, let me, let me just say, I have nothing against Indonesia. It's just that whenever I ask any Malaysian who's most likely to invade Malaysia, they always say Indonesia. <laughs> now, when you're sitting distraught in Indonesia, your enemies ask you to entertain them with a rendition of Nagara Ku. That is the Malaysian national anthem for those who aren't Malaysian. Now, would you be feeling joyful? Would you be able to sing this song to them? That's a situation of the exiles in this psalm, tormented. The Babylonians asked them to sing songs of Zion in exile, and it's like rubbing salt into an open wound. Now let's see how the Israelites respond to the taunts of their enemies. So on your, hand, on your outline, response part one, verses five to six. The psalmist's response has two parts. The first part is a promise of commitment, verses 5 to 6. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. So here the psalmist brings a self-curse. He's cursing himself. If I forget Jerusalem, if I do not cherish Jerusalem as my chief joy, he says, may my right hand become useless and may I become mute. Now you may find it strange that the psalmists 
commits himself to a city instead of to Yahweh, to God. But remember that Jerusalem was where David's throne was located. Jerusalem was the capital city. It was also where the temple was located. And of course, the temple signified God's presence with his people. Thus, Jerusalem was symbolic of God's purposes for Israel. Now, at the beginning of the exile, it would seem impossible that the Israelites would forget Jerusalem. But in time, God's people would settle down in Babylon. They would build houses there. They would send their roots into Babylonian society. My two brothers have lived overseas now for 12 years or more. One lives in Belgium and the other one lives in New York. I know that with each passing year, it becomes less and less likely that they're going to return back home, that is, return back to Australia. They've got jobs overseas. They've made friends overseas. They've gotten used to the climate and the lifestyle there. They've made homes for themselves overseas. It would be 50 years before Israel would be allowed to return to their promised land. Now, that's a long time to settle in one country. And as we find out in Ezra Nehemiah, not everybody would return to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. Some Israelites would choose to stay in foreign lands. And that is why it is important for the psalmist to vow to commit himself to Jerusalem, to commit himself to God. It's not a given that everybody will stay committed. In another sense, the psalmist's pledge can be taken as an act of political defiance. I may be under Babylonian rule, but I will remain faithful to my homeland. I will remain loyal to my God and his purposes. So to the next point, response, part two, verses seven to nine. Now, this intertwining of God's purposes and remembering is also seen in the second part of the psalmist's response. Now, this time it's been switched around. It's not the psalmist vowing to remember, but the psalmist asking God to remember. Take a look at verse 7. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem, how they said, Lay it bare, lay it bare, lay it down to its foundations. The psalmist calls on God to remember the Edomites. In particular, the psalmist calls on God to remember the Edomites' contribution to the fall of Jerusalem. Now, if you read the Old Testament book of Obadiah, you'll see that Edom didn't just stand back to watch the Babylonians destroy Jerusalem. No. The Edomites also looted Jerusalem and even handed over its survivors to the Babylonians. Now, do you remember the background of the Edomites? Do you guys remember who the Edomites are? They were actually relatives of the Israelites. They were originally descended from Esau. Remember the Jacob and Esau story, right? Yeah. So the situation is something like this. Imagine if a robber came into your house to steal your TV and your laptop. 
All the while, your cousin stands by to watch and to cheer, pointing out the stereo that they've left behind, <laughs> the jewelry that's been left behind, and even suggesting that the, that the Edomites, or the robber in this instance, kidnap your children as well. Now, how you would feel in this situation is something like what the Israelites would have felt towards the Edomites at the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, looking back at verse 7, did you notice what the psalmist doesn't ask for? Did you see what he does not ask for? The psalmist does not call for any specific action from God. He does not specifically ask for God to pay the Edomites back. He does not ask God to destroy the Edomites. Of course, the psalmist does want God to pay back the Edomites what they deserve. The psalmist longs for justice, but he's content to leave the payback to God. He asks God to remember how the Edomites treated them. Then he leaves the rest to God. Now, although the psalmist is deliberately vague in calling for God's action, in the final part of the psalm, he becomes very clear. In the final part, he becomes very clear. Take a look at verses 8 to 9. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. The psalmist looks forward to God carrying out his plan to destroy Babylon. The psalmist looks forward to when God will bash the heads of the Babylonian children until their brains spill out. The vividness and the violence of this picture is both chilling and shocking. It is seething with anger. It's no wonder that these verses are often left out. And we should rightly recoil. We should recoil in horror. But we need to keep two things in mind. Firstly, killing children is what happens during wartime. In Old Testament, as is described, for example, in 2 Kings 8 and Hosea 10. Indeed, as it says in verse 8 of our psalm, it is what the Babylonians did to Israel. It's one way that the victor can make sure that there's nobody to rise up against them in the future. Kill off the family, kill off the children. It's something like what you might see in Chinese Kung Fu movies. <coughs> Uh, where whole families are killed in revenge. And sadly, killing children in war still happens this day, today. For anyone who reads the newspaper or watches the news on TV, you know that the killing of infants and children still happens in war today. In fact, UNICEF estimates that 2 million children have been killed in war in the past 10 years. The second thing that we need to keep in mind is that God had prophesied in Isaiah 13 and elsewhere that he would bring judgment upon Babylon. 
This is what Isaiah 13, 16 says. The infants, that is the Babylonian infants, will be dashed to pieces before their eyes. The houses will be plundered and their wives ravished. In other words, children being killed is what happens during warfare. And the psalmist in verses 8 to 9 expresses confidence that God will carry out just what he has promised he would do, bring judgment upon Babylon. But that still leaves us with a problem. As Christians, how do we apply this psalm? Of course, for those who have experienced the atrocities of war or serious crime firsthand, it is not hard to apply. It is not hard to apply for those who might have suffered in Nazi concentration camps or lived through genocide in Cambodia. It's not hard to apply for those who had suffered under the hand of ISIS or Boko Haram. It's not hard to apply for relatives of murder victims. It's not hard to apply for those who are, who are victims of abuse. These groups of people are driven to cry out for vengeance, to cry out for justice. In 2007, Lindsay Hawker was a 22-year-old British teacher who was murdered while working in Japan. And here's a picture on this next slide. Unless we've gone through the suffering of having a son or daughter murdered, we can't fully understand the pain and the hurt and the anger that the Hawker parents would have felt. But at least we can try to empathize with Lindsay's father. In Japanese courts, the family is allowed to speak directly to the accuser. And a Japanese newspaper reports that Mr. Hawker angrily said to the accused, our lives will never be the same again. That's what he said. The newspaper specifically reported his angry tone. And we can understand Mr. Hawker urging justice. He called for the maximum sentence. He called for the death penalty. In the end, Ichihashi Hashi, was given life imprisonment. But even if we haven't endured such severe suffering, we also feel hatred. We also feel bitterness at times. It may be that somebody has wronged or hurt us. Perhaps a parent has persistently mistreated you in the past, always putting you down over your achievements, openly preferring a brother or sister perhaps, or simply just ignoring you. Perhaps a best friend who, who you hung out with, uh, who you shared secrets with, has now turned against you and now stabs you in the back by viciously telling untrue rumors about you. Or perhaps your business partner, with whom you shared a joint venture, has now run off with the capital, leaving you to deal with the impending bankruptcy case. Now, I don't know your personal circumstances, but sometimes in circumstances such as these, and many more, we may feel so much anger that we struggle to forgive. 
Now, Lewis Smedes, Lewis Smedes was a former professor of theology and ethics. And he's described four stages in the process of forgiveness. So Lewis Smedes suggests that the process has these four stages. We hurt, we hate, we heal, we come together. Now, do you see the first two stages there? We hurt, we hate. Hate is a natural reaction when we are hurt by others, suggests Meads. And it's only when we go through these stages that healing can begin, and then finally forgiveness and reconciliation. This psalm, Psalm 137, gives voice to our hurt, our hate, our pain, and our longing for justice. And the psalm gives us permission to be honest with God. The psalm gives us permission to feel and even express our anger to God. Because the thing is this, we don't need to suppress, suppress our emotions with God. We don't always need to speak to God in a sanitized way. God is big enough to take our emotions God is big enough to take our pain. After all, he knows how we're feeling already. Expressing our hurt and anger to God is a way of recognizing and in a sense owning our pain. It is a way of being honest with ourselves. It is a way of being honest before God. Expressing our anger to God is a way of showing our trust in our sovereign God. He will deal with it in his time. So we leave the work of retribution to God. We leave the work of vengeance to God. We don't mete out justice to those who have wronged us. We don't mete out justice to those who have hurt us. We don't go and take justice into our own hands. As it says in Romans chapter 12, verse 19. Do not take revenge. Do, uh, sorry. Hmm. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Quoting from Deuteronomy. So is it true to say that the Old Testament promotes hatred while the Old Testament promotes forgiveness and love? If you look at the next slide, Romans 12.20, you'll see that it says, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. This is from the New Testament, Romans 12, but that's actually a quote from Proverbs chapter 25. So already that idea which is developed in the New Testament is found in the, Old, uh, in the Old Testament. But back to the main point. Romans chapter 12, 19 reinforces the teaching that we are to entrust the retribution to God. Just as the psalmist did in leaving God to bring justice to the Edomites and to the Babylonians. And as we entrust our anger to God we will set out on the path to forgive those who have wronged us. As we entrust our anger to God, 
we set out on the path to personal healing. And as we seek restoration, we have the Holy Spirit to help us, to shape us into the image of the one who, in response to his enemies as they crucified him, said, Father, forgive them. Now, this ability that we have as Christians to forgive reminds me of the inspirational story of Sokriatha Him, as we'll see on the next slide. He retells his story in a book called The Tears of My Soul. Riax's family was killed by the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia in 1977. His family, his family was, was marched to a, uh, their makeshift grave, and one by one, they were hacked to death. This is a description of his father's murder and Riax's response of anger. My father was standing and facing the grave. They kicked his legs from behind him, so he fell on his knees. As he turned his head, they clubbed him with a hoe. He fell into the grave with a scream. I didn't want to watch, but I couldn't turn away. I saw what filled me with such helpless rage. His rage would have been natural for any one of us in, uh, if we were in his situation. Although the men struck Riaxa also, he managed to escape death although the bodies of his dying family piled up on top of him in the grave. After escaping, Riaxa made a promise to his family. He promised to take revenge for their deaths, to hunt down and kill every one of those who murdered his family. But then Riaxa became a Christian. It made a huge difference to his life, and he writes in his book, since becoming a Christian, my heart has been filled with joy. Jesus is the Prince of Peace, indeed. Yet the journey of forgiveness of the murders was still long and hard. The book details his long struggle to forgive, taking years and years of his life. As he says, and this might resonate with some of us, if you have been hurt deeply, it isn't easy to forgive, he says. In 2003, Riaxa returned to the village where his family was killed. He tracked down the last remaining man. Of course, the man was fearful of meeting Riaxa, but instead of seeking revenge, Riaxa spoke to him of God's love, of God's forgiveness. And this is what he writes. By God's grace, I was able to forgive him and set him free in my heart. Now that's the key to forgiveness, isn't it? It's only as we truly grasp, grasp the depth of God's grace in forgiving us that we can forgive others. For we are people who have wronged God. We have hurt God by turning away from him. We have hurt God by rebelling against him and his commands. We have chosen to become God's enemies. Yet in his grace, God has forgiven us. And as it says in Colossians chapter 3, 
verse 13. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And as we seek to forgive, we need to remember this. If not for the, for the forgiveness that we find in Jesus, we too would still be under God's terrible judgment. So let me finish up with some questions. Can we hear Psalm 137 calling us to be honest before God about our anger without acting in retaliation? Can we hear Psalm 137 calling us to be honest before God about our anger without acting in retaliation? That's question one. Question two. Can we in faith entrust our hatred and bitterness to God knowing that he'll take them seriously and that he will deal with our anger and hatred in his time? Can we in faith entrust our hatred and bitterness to God knowing that he'll deal with it in his time? Finally, can we begin with this honest pain and continue on the journey towards forgiveness? Can we begin with this honest pain and continue on the journey towards forgiveness? May God grant us the courage and the strength to apply his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. We thank you for Psalm 137. We thank you that it hasn't been removed from our, our Bibles, your scriptures, your word. We thank you that it can teach us about hatred and bitterness and vengeance, how we can be honest before you with our pain and our suffering and our anger. We pray that in, in our lives that you might help us to be able to see the grace that you have shown us, the forgiveness that you have shown us, the fact that you've taken the pain and the suffering uh, of the whole world uh, on your son Jesus on the cross. We pray that in our lives that you might help us to forgive just as you have forgiven us. Help us to enlarge in our hearts to be able to see your great grace towards us so that we might be gracious towards others. And we praise in your son's name. Amen.